hello, hello. Welcome to Gamer Radio, episode number three. Today I have Eric Nance with me of the R Podcast. Did I get that right? You sure did, my friend. All right. How are you, Eric? I'm doing awesome now. This is an awesome way to start a Monday morning as we record this, and it's an honor to be on a podcast with you yet again, Michael. Uh, how are you? I'm good. It's great. Great talking to you again. So let's kick things off. What have you been playing this past week? Yeah, so I've been on a little bit of an emulation kick, which I'm sure we'll be touching on later in the episode with my Steam Deck, and I decided to play through one of my favorite franchises of all time, the Metroid series, and I just beat the original one last week, and I'm going to turn my attention this week to Metroid 2, which was released on the Game Boy way back in the day, and one that I never actually beat in my younger years. So I'm going to resolve that this week and go through all the crawling involved to hunt down all those pesky Metroid hatchlings. So should be a lot of fun, my friend. How about you? Nice. Yeah, I'm still playing Marvel Midnight Suns. It is quite a bit longer than I had thought. Probably three quarters of the way through now. That's on the PS5. Still good. Tactical, kind of simplified tactical strategy game. The uh, I don't know if you're familiar with XCOM Enemy Unknown. Oh, yes, I am. Yep. Same idea, just uh, watered down and with kind of a card mechanic, which is an interesting twist. So, Sweet. yeah, but you, you were mentioning the Game Boy. Now, this is the original Game Boy. I think some of our younger folks will remember the blackened, off-greenish glory of that system. Yes. Oh, my goodness. It gives you the feels just looking at it. It's almost like if my TI-85 calculator in high school oh. could play really legit games that's kind of what the game boy was all about but it had you know everybody thinks of tetris of course that's what really sold the system back in the early days but there are some awesome gems from nintendo and other third parties although it's a bit slower you know the graphics are certainly dated but if you got yourself the game boy color back in the day at least you could get a little bit of color with it and then little fun fact is that the super nintendo did get an add-on later in its life to let you play Game Boy games directly on your TV. So that was a pretty novel thing for Nintendo to do. But yeah, there's a lot of hidden gems there that are worth pulling out, especially if you have a quick 5-10 minute break and want to kill some time. Yeah, definitely fun. Nice. Yeah, I think some folks might not know uh, the Game Boy Color, and correct me if I'm wrong, would try to retroactively colorize, almost like, you know, the old movies in glorious Technicolor, right? Exactly. Yeah. So you could yeah. choose like a few different palettes, I believe, but it yep. was, don't get your hopes up. It didn't turn it into like a 16-bit classic, but it, it gave you a little bit of life at least. So are you playing the entire Metroid series and, and are you doing it in order? I'm going to try that. I don't know the okay. best way plans, right? But certainly I'm starting with the, the 8 and 16-bit era, and then I'll move back on to the the GBA, Game Boy Advance era, and then the Prime series that was on oh, GameCube. Those are amazing titles. I can't get enough of them. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing something similar with the Mario games. Uh, the I'm actually doing the Super Nintendo remakes of them uh, what is it, All-Stars? It's yes, I love yeah. that. That was the first yeah. time I got to the Lost Levels or Mario 2 back in the day. The real Mario 2. <laughs> the real Mario 2. I actually just finished that one. I uh, That game is stupidly hard. It will punish you immensely. I think I gave up after the first couple worlds, and then I went back to the Mario 3 and the like. <laughs> nice. All right, so speaking of Mario and such things, uh, I know you and I are 
it's fair. We're, we're Sega mourners in a way. We're, we're very sad, right? We're, we're missing our Sega. A soft spot in my heart when they uh, went by the wayside on the hardware era. <laughs> uh, you know, I could speak for hours on why the Dreamcast was actually the best system of that generation. I will not fight you on that for sure. Totally yes, agree. <laughs> this is going to be a very one-sided conversation. You know, it's very uh, unfair, but hey, listen, we're not, we don't have to be fair. So you've come with this document, just the facts. Why don't we launch into it? We'll start with uh, the NES versus the Sega Master System. And I think I, I feel I have to asterisk the Sega Master System again for, for the younger folks. Genesis was not the first Sega system in America, and it wasn't really the competitor to the NES, even though lots of people maybe remember it that way. It was the Master System, which was, well, go ahead. You're spot on, man. When I was younger, I didn't really grasp just what the significance of the Master System was, because originally it was at one of my neighbor's houses, and we just, my brother Mm -hmm. and I just crashed here sometimes and play a little Sega Master System while we had Nintendo at our house back in that day. But yeah, the Sega Master System actually did come out, you know, from Sega at the time. And it, so it tried, I don't know if it really tried to compete with Nintendo or if Nintendo just blitzed them after the release of the NES because it really wasn't a marketing effort here in America, not that I recall. You just would remember the distinctive boxes of Sega Master System games always look kind of the same. The white checkered pattern with a nice logo in front. And then you had the Nintendo boxes, which had a distinctly flavor. But most of the stores had way more Nintendo games than Sega Master System games. But what's interesting about the Master System is that, you know, this is a subjective opinion. I love your take on it. But some say it actually had superior hardware to the Nintendo itself. Now, again, subjective here, but some of the games on there were very, you know, vibrant, colorful. I think mm-hmm. what gets the bad rap is the sound is a little bit on the tinny side. Like it, it, you have to kind of learn to appreciate the sound of it, but there are some interesting gems on it that I could talk about. But yeah, what's your take, Mike, on the hardware of the Master System when you think about it? Yeah, so full disclosure, my first system was the Genesis, and that is a function of just time, right? <laughs> I'm a little older than you for sure. <laughs> yeah, not much though, but yeah, I think so. So it's a, uh, I actually don't know for sure. So I always felt, and this does continue on, and this is kind of the Achilles heel of Sega, in my opinion. Maybe they stopped at like the Dreamcast era with this, but. They were really trying to just port their amazingly successful Japanese and European arcade business to the American home console business, where Nintendo, I feel, was always doing something a little different. I mean, sure, they ported Donkey Kong, which was uh, obviously their breakout arcade game, to the NES at some point, but I always felt like Sega kept more in that, we're bringing the arcade to your home. You know, was cool. And then wasn't when you realize arcade games are designed to screw you out of as many quarters as possible. (laughs) Right. And maybe that's not the best home console experience. Hardware wise, you know, I've read conflicting reports on that. So maybe you should walk me through that. You're a little more knowledgeable on the, the hardware of these older systems. Why do you say it was arguably more powerful than the NES? Yeah, so the it had at the heart of the Master System the Z80 processor, which again, I don't know too much about specifically, but I do b- believe it had a wider color palette 
than mm-hmm. the Nintendo did, where I believe in Nintendo, you could only have 16 colors at the same time, where I believe Master System at least doubled that. Like, And you can see, if you hunt down for some of the classics that people talk about, one of them that I remember my neighbor had as I was going to their house was this little gem called Fantasy Zone, which is a great little shooter with role-playing game elements. It was kind of novel at the time, but you look at it and it looks really colorful. Like it, it almost stands out today. So I knew it definitely had something more superior on the graphics side. But again, I think what brought it down is I would say the NES definitely has superior sound chip because some of the the classics on NES, like, of course, you mentioned Mario Brothers, uh, Metroid, and many others, they had very distinct soundtracks, and they immersed you in the game, whereas the Master System, you feel like you're listening to something at a high-pitched tune all the time, which can kind of grate on you a little bit. So it may have been kind of a wash, but, again, there were some games that really pushed that hardware pretty well. But, again, if you're in America... Unless you had a neighbor or, or maybe you're, you you got fascinated by the box art of it in the stores, you probably didn't own one back in the day. And so truly, that's why I think most people think of Genesis as their first major splash in it, because that's when you actually heard about it. And that Sega was really aggressive with making sure you heard about it, too. Right. Well, we should note that between the launch of the Genesis and the Master System, you know, but that's the other way around, right? Sega really made the decision to kind of empower Sega of America, a decision they later reversed, uh, which (laughs) (laughs) happened. But they really, yeah, they really didn't, where Nintendo was kind of very aggressively uh, supporting their American subsidiary. Is it, are they, they are subsidiaries, right? Yes, they are, yep. Yeah. Sega, I believe it already had one for the Master System. Yeah, it must have, but it wasn't, anywhere near the scale of the Nintendo operation here. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, if you look back at some of the historical marketing and sales numbers, it, it definitely showed. You uh, bet. Yep. Based yep. advertised. Yeah. If you put money in, you get some good stuff out. And they yeah. did not put much in, in the 8 They did not. Sure. Yeah. And then also like obscure Japanese arcade games. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting choice. Yeah. When you got things like Final Fantasy and Dragon Warrior on the NES, getting people yep. exposed to RPGs and then games that you could actually, you know, save and and enjoy along the way versus getting punished with arcade difficulty. Yeah, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out right. why. And exactly you have intuitive things like Duck Hunt that even, you know, Uncle <laughs> Ted can play, right? I mean, of course. Yep. Yeah. All right. So, that, so then your next game you have on here is Streets of Rage. Now, I thought this was a Genesis game and I had to look it up. You're right. The first one was on the Master. Isn't that crazy how that works? Yeah. But again, no one would only the the most pure historians would know that now i never played it on the master system but you could tell like you said the arcade roots of sega you know streets of rage is certainly an arcade inspired beat-em-up but they didn't really perfect that of course until they ported that over to genesis and the rest is history of that franchise easily one of my favorites of all time yep and then we have fantasy star I think most people listening to this would probably know Fantasy Star Online. Tangentially related, I guess would be a fair way to say that. Yeah, you're reaching for the stars on that. Um, but, yeah, very good. <laughs> but what was interesting about Fantasy Star is that I believe it was one of the earliest RPGs on Master System, mm. but it also combined the typical RPG stuff 
But then when you went into dungeons, it put you into that first person kind of 3D perspective, which meant no nice map on the pause screen or anything. You had to kind of keep track on paper where you were going. It bust was, out your graph paper, kids. Yep, bust out the graph paper. And it was punishing as well. Like Fantasy Star is easily one of the most difficult RPGs I've ever played. And I, how I beat it, I'm not even sure. I think I just piled my way through it back in my later years. But it, it did set the trend that Sega could produce an RPG that actually was halfway decent, but that was certainly not a major focus of them. But it was another interesting look back at history if you ever want to pull that one out sometime. Yeah, an- another great historical point is Alex Kidd, who would be viciously murdered by a blue hedgehog later on. But. Oh, yes. The the gory end of Alex. Yes, this yeah. was, you know, the, a lot of varying opinions on Alex Kidd. I certainly played through some of it, but I never really enjoyed it as much no. as some of the obviously Sonic later on. But you could tell uh, Sega was at least giving somewhat of an attempt to get a mascot on Master System. But obviously it never took off like Mario did. <laughs> no, it never. It's uh, this is where I think we're going to kind of start transitioning the generations but there's uh how, how can you put this uh a bit of historical argument about how this went down right if you listen to a gentleman named tom kalinsky mm-hmm. sega of america going into the genesis age had a lot of input on what sonic would eventually become kind of drove that process i've heard other things where not so much and this is going to be for folks who aren't like deep into this history the story of Sega is basically a company at war with its subsidiary for no real reason <laughs> other than a culture clash. Right. When it's kind of strange because, well, we shouldn't jump that far ahead. But yeah, it's Alex Kidd was trying to be Mario, right? It was trying to be a mascot for the brand. The games weren't really that good. So that doesn't help. And just the feel of it was kind of generic. Even if you look back, you can see Mario, even back then, he kind of had a style. Donkey Kong certainly did. And you could argue at this point in time, Donkey Kong was the bigger uh, bigger IP, certainly in the mm-hmm. beginning of that, you know, the mid to late 80s. So we probably should mention on the games front, and I'm curious what you think about this, Nintendo's, uh, let's say, questionable licensing practices for third-party developers. Because <laughs> oh, yeah. this also did a lot of damage to Sega, right? It sure did. And many of the both the 8-bit and the 16-bit are early on because, for those that aren't aware, Nintendo basically would lock up any third-party vendor with their license agreements and prohibit them from making equivalent titles on different platforms. And certainly... It worked wonderfully for them in the beginning with NES, just basically, like I said, steamrolling through the American and Japanese markets with all not just the great Nintendo first party tires, but also the third party ones. So that's why you see for a lot of the, say, top 10 lists of Master System games and even the early days of the Genesis, most of those are coming from Sega directly because there was no other choice. They had to really up their game so to speak, to make sure that they could get their eyes on their system. And that meant many internal teams cranking out these games left and right. And certainly a dependence on their arcade division where they had their own IP for, but yeah, that can't do everything, which they found out brutally in the, in the early days. (laughs) I think folks working in game development might find this super foreign, right? There, There was no like unreal or unity 
or uh, you know, insert Frostbite engine here, I guess, if people are still really into that, for the simple fact that Nintendo simply would not allow you to do such a thing as like have shared code and port between systems. So much so that very famously, right, the, the example of this, and we're, since we're going into the 16-bit era, is the very, very good Aladdin game on Sega Genesis, which is probably one of its better games. Oh, easily. One of my favorites, yeah. Yeah, and the mediocre version of it on the SNES, there's two reasons for that. Two really big reasons. One, the Disney, right, the people who make Aladdin, actually were able to do some animation work with the company developing the Sega version. Some of that's technical enablement by the Genesis. A lot of that is just the way the different companies worked. And also, the two development teams were different companies that had nothing to do with each other and just got hired to make a licensed game. It's such a foreign concept today. It would be like if, I'm trying to think of what the most analogous, Call of Duty, right? If Activision and then some weird company down here in Florida were both, you know, Microsoft said, all right, Activision, you make me a Call of Duty, you know, Madbotter, you make, uh, and Sony comes to Madbotter and says, we'll make one. We might end up making radically different games. We'll have the same characters, the same IP. That's exactly what happened with Aladdin and a number of other games, right? It's really, it was a wild time. There was also Nintendo's, uh, shall we call it, um, well, they, they, had a, they had their Seal of Quality program, oh, yeah. which in the beginning was extremely conservative in what content they allowed. So that definitely, as we go into the 60-bit era, you know, Sega does what Nintendo don't, right? Was the big marketing slogan. And then that Sega scream, which I won't blow out your headphones by doing, <laughs> but you could Google that. It ended up being this weird, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like this case of Sega becoming the more edgy console and Nintendo kind of doubling down on it's just one Apple like vice grip on the developers. And really, Apple have a Nintendo like vice grip. Who knows? And it's kind of IPs, but I, I got ahead of us. So the Genesis, tell me about the best console Sega's ever made. Oh my goodness. Yes, I remember this well, hearing that it was going to come out in the US and then begging my grandparents for a Genesis for Christmas. And they obliged. It was a miracle. But um, yes, this is at the time where I still had the Nintendo, still playing the heck out of a lot of that. But then when that Genesis was unwrapped and I plugged that in, I was immediately blown away by basically it, it showcased the promise that, hey, this is a system that can at least get kind of closer to that arcade feel and the pack in game altered beast, which is definitely the butt of many jokes. But this is the first time I heard a digitized voice in a game. Mm. <laughs> the end, like the first boss goes, welcome to your doom or something to that in the typical Genesis kind of garbled <laughs> sense. But it was it was showing me that, oh, my gosh, this system blows NES just completely out of the water with its graphics and sound. And I could not believe just the just the escalation in capability compared to that my neighbor's master system that I would visit now and again. So Genesis really wowed me right away. And not that I like this, this continued my use of NES right after that, but you could clearly see even with some of the first gen titles, the Sega was on to something here. Things like Revenge of Shinobi, which was an amazing sequel to the original Shinobi on Master System. And then 
ports like Golden Axe, another great beat em up from the awesome. arcade that actually was pretty faithful to the the arcade on Genesis. And then Fantasy Star 2 just totally blows away Fantasy Star 1 out of the water and showing that Sega could indeed do an RPG if they put their mind to it. But even that first gen showed that great promise of technical achievement, but also just really darn fun games to play, especially those co-op games like Golden Axe. My brother and I would just beat the heck out of that, you know, at the same time. It was really opening my eyes quite a bit. And I knew Sega was onto something then. Yeah, Genesis was my first console. And I got the, it was the the second revision where they started packing in Sonic 1 and they made it slightly smaller. That thing was a tank. It must have lasted, I think it was still working like 17 years later. Uh, yeah, you really, can't fault Sega for making quality harder. And even that first gen with the add-ons that I bolted on after the fact, I think still works, which is an achievement in and of itself. I also had one of those horrible add-ons that we're going to discuss shortly. Yes, <laughs> But I mean, I was blown away. I had played the NES prior to that. I did not have one. And but when I I remember booting it up and Sonic coming on and just the size of the sprites, which I know again is going to sound crazy to modern gamers, but just the size of the sprites, the speed, and if you look at Sonic One now, it's just not that fast. Oh yeah, I know. But back then, oh my god, you're I'm like it's too fast. He's I got to slow him down. Yes, uh, and that was like the first game that really gave me that sensation. And nothing mm-hmm. on the NES, and frankly, even the Super NES, Super Nintendo up to that point gave you that sense of of speed and frankly the controls were so tight too like very responsive not that the super nintendo had bad controls but you just felt like it it was more real time and maybe it was just a feeling of just the difference in the way sega architected it but it just felt so like pitch perfect with how you were controlling sonic and making sure that you could speed through those loops and it didn't look, the system never slowed down. Like the NES was notorious for those slowdown moments when too oh, many yeah. sprites were on the screen. And even Super Nintendo had that too. If you look at the original Gradius 3 port that Konami did, that slows down in many places. But in Genesis, never really saw that. So it was really amazing what they did with that hardware there. Right. And so this is the point where their strategy of we are porting our very popular arcade IPs over to the home console. And crucially, Sega was uh, not as open as Sony would eventually be, but they were, compared to Nintendo, super open, super liberal with uh, game studios and publishers of that time. right? So much so that they ended up, I believe the story is Sega had their own Sega sports team initially, and they just got so close with EA that EA just, it was huge, right? It's what made EA EA was making sports games for Sega. That was a huge launching point. I was even reading it up last week to refresh our memory of how that went down. But yep. EA was probably one of the most influential third parties Sega ever had for the Genesis era and beyond. And John Madden football would not mm-hmm. exist without Genesis. Like that's where EA made their their profits that's where the whole franchise started and many of the best sports games of the 16-bit era were on genesis i think in no small part due to the fact that ea were able to basically reverse engineer how to construct effective genesis games but also that speed again that 68,000 processor just made whether it was madden or nhl hockey or even their 
later soccer titles, they just felt fast, like you were really in the sport. And I have so many great memories of the EA games on on Genesis, and they really mastered the sound too. One guilty pleasure is Road Rash. If you never played that, yes. I loved it. It was, um, for those not aware, you're riding a motorcycle in a race, but yet you get the punch and kick the other races off and have the most hilarious sounds and little cutscenes at the end when you made a driver angry. It was it was hilarious. Just right. classic again, memories from that. And again, at the time, Nintendo probably would have never greenlit that deal. Oh yeah, uh, due to due to content, right? Because Road Rash had kind of a, I wouldn't say malicious, but it definitely had like a punk attitude to it, right? Oh yeah, even the soundtrack just gets you in that mood right away. But actually, was- now I'm remembering, you can hit them in the face with a chain as you drive by them too in Road Rash. So it's pretty bad. It's pretty oh, Nintendo yeah. was never allowing that. Yep, uh, but that you're right. Sega was saying, "Hey, bring it on!" You know, yeah. third parties and. Obviously, the most famous example of this is Mortal Kombat being the quote-unquote blood and gore version compared to the good old sweat of the SNES version, even though the Super Nintendo version probably had superior graphics. But of course, if you you know why Mortal Kombat got all those quarters in the arcade, wasn't exactly for technique, you know? (laughs) Yeah, and this is an area too where Sega, I would argue, got unfairly kind of lambasted by politicians and interest groups because nintendo i would say very craftily was able to wrap itself in the for the children's flag and also tom kalinsky man you, you got to watch some of those old interviews yeah it makes sense everything he's saying now but if you take yourself back and i was a kid during most of this so i was born in the 80s right uh, so this is where now we're in what 94 yeah 95 yep. ish you know, video games were, were definitely seen as toys. And I'm, I'm wondering if folks from our relative age group would see it that way, too. Certainly, uh, certainly Tip Agora saw it that way and uh, Joe Lieberman. <laughs> so that was a problem for Sega and it didn't super work out well. The other thing is this is the beginning of Sega of America and Sega of Japan feuding. So the story I read in a book called Console Wars, which is a little suspect because one of the primary sources is a good book, but one of the primary sources is Tom Kalinske, the president of Sega of America. And the way he paints it is like, I don't know. He did some aggressive advertising going after Nintendo, and that offended the set, the just the way things were done back in Japan. And it is true, back back then, it was not, they never did like competitive marketing like that, where you would say, you know, Toyota's amazing and Honda sucks. You would just say Toyota's amazing. You, you wouldn't go after the other guy. We're here in the good old USA. Apple wakes up every morning to tell you that Android sucks. That's what they do. Like first thing in the morning, every day. Green bubbles for people who <laughs> listen to that to go to radio, right? Oh, yeah. So that apparently started some discomfort. The kind of weird case where Sonic 2 was mostly developed here, which I've heard conflicting reports about. I think that's, I, I'm curious what you've heard on that one. Yeah, I've heard similar things, but then you look at the playability. I'll be honest, I, with many people regarding that as one of the best entry in the 60-bit Sonic series, and again, for me, that's uh, there could be a toss-up between that and the original, but I mean, it plays really well, and I'm honestly not sure if Sega of America could pull that off, mostly in their shop. Like, I, I don't know if I put a lot of stock into that. 
Yeah, there there's some revisionist history, I think, going on on both sides. Right, right. What was true is that at this time, Sega decided to compete with the Game Boy, which was already out, with a machine called the Game Gear that ate six to ten batteries in a week. So, oh, yeah, my parents yeah. did not like me for requesting so many batteries every every week when we got that one too, and it, we would put that in the car on road trips, like the little cottage we had, like north of our house. And yeah, they didn't last very long, especially yeah, some of those. You know, more the games that pushed the system a little more, like they ported Sonic on that. They ported some other classics on there. Yeah, it, that one. Yeah, unfortunately, Game Boy kind of trounced that that market, too. But you could tell Sega was still branching into these ideas. And little did we know that not that I bought this one, but they ended up even making a portable Genesis called the Nomad of all things. <laughs> oh, yes, I forgot crazy. about that. Yeah. And for Nintendo's sake, they had their virtual boy, which was terrible. A little wow. pro, proto, an Oculus before the Oculus. Oh goodness, yes. So speaking of terrible mistakes, I think the next two are are right in that lane. Sega CD. Uh, you have a list here called classics. I got to hear the defense of the Sega CD. Oh, good. Okay, maybe we could do some controversy here. So, well, first of all, the Sega CD was, you know, back then my only computer at that time was an Apple II GS. So I'm showing my age here, but. The fact that I could have these games that just sounded so amazing and plug it in and play were was mind blowing to me. Now, of course, for those that aren't aware of Sega CD, you still had to have the Genesis to play it. So it literally hooked on the side of it and it was its own very massive unit. So now my Genesis is like super tall and very boxy. So you didn't want to like move it around after you bolted that thing on in case you try to break it. But I still, I stand by that there are some really awesome games on Sega CD once you get past the infamous night trap and sewer shark jokes of FMV. Mm. I, I know that's going to come up at some point, but if yeah. you like Sonic, Sonic CD, man. I mean, that had the time travel aspect of it. The soundtrack True. was fantastic. Although that was interesting. The soundtrack was different in the American release than the Japanese release. So that's a little um, interesting nugget there, maybe of things to come. But very vibrant graphics, very fast once again. So I think that's a that's an awesome one. But if you are into role-playing games, like I was certainly as I was getting into the Final Fantasy series, the Lunar series is well worth your time. You can suck a lot of hours into that. It's got that great JRPG classic feel. The soundtrack is superb. And Working Designs, the company that ported it to America, went above and beyond in the translation route. So I think those are worth finding if you like that um, like that genre. And a little fun shooter, shoot them up if you like those, is called Silphied which had some of the most comical voice acting you'll ever hear. I won't spoil it, but somebody's not happy when a carrier gets blown up. You just have to play it to find out. But yeah, there, there are some hidden gems on there. But again, there is a lot of trash on there too. So I can see why somebody might say that's a mistake, but I don't think it was quite as big of a mistake as what we'll talk about in a little bit here. <laughs> yeah, so and in defense of the Sega CD a little too, it did do better in Japan than in the States. So I have a kind of a contrarian take on this. I think kind of Night Trap was a horrible mistake and Sega should have taken a page out of Nintendo's book only to protect their brand. Yes. It did tarnish it immensely. I do acknowledge that. Well, because Joe Lieberman was on CNN every day saying (laughs) 
Yeah, if you want to know about Night Trap, you can Google it. It's honestly a bad game that is in poor taste, in my opinion. And it screwed over what could have been an interesting peripheral add-on. Although I'm still skeptical. What I'm not skeptical about is the absolute garbage. And I actually had this one that was 32X. Complete crap. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. What a mistake. What a mistake. Now, I will to defend it a little bit. There are some good ports on there, but you have to work really hard to find them. (laughs) But I did buy it. And the way this went on the Genesis is this plugged into the cartridge slot. But at least the version I got, which may have been the only version, you had to put these two little metal plates on the side. There's only one version. Yep. And once you pull it on, you probably can't take it out. Like I never tried taking it out after I put it on. So I felt scared about it. But it was a colossal mistake because I believe this was Sega of America's idea, whereas Sega of Japan was gearing up for the Sega Saturn, rightfully so. But it just was too little too late. And the price for that combined with the very, very limited selection. I do want to give a, at least some positive mention to Virtual Racing Deluxe, which was an arcade perfect port of the Virtual Racing arcade racer that paved the way with some of the more sophisticated Polygon Model 2 board racers. Afterburner was a perfect arcade port, but that arcade game came out many years before 32X, so it better be perfect at that point. There was a Sonic like game called knuckle chaotix which might be worth it if you're a sonic diehard but honestly i wouldn't hold it against if you never it's, hunt that down <laughs> it's not it's yeah. not yeah. Star, yeah the one i had on your list of star wars arcade and that that actually is a good game it is yeah and that's again by sega first party so they knew what they were doing since they made the arcade game too so yeah it was a colossal failure i don't it definitely didn't break a million units sold in america no And it definitely was the, I think, the first domino or maybe the second in Sega's downfall in the hardware space. Because then you, when you see like the 32X and the Saturn almost on the same store shelf and you're wondering what the heck is Sega doing with this? It just diluted their own market. It was just a, just a colossal failure. It it was strange because as you transition into the Saturn era, if you can even call it an era. Saturn did better in Japan, like significantly better than it did in the States. I think mostly because it didn't have to compete with itself with the 32X, which normally I'm all for people emulating these old games going back or even picking up some old hardware. Don't You can skip the 32X because you're probably going to damage your Genesis when you put those metal rods, those little bracket things in there. I know I did. So. Yeah, I I didn't dare take it out. And the worst part is, since I can't take it out, I couldn't put the add-on that actually was worth a little bit of something more, which was the power base converter, which uh, you play Sega Master System games on the Genesis, which you could take out at your leisure. So (laughs) they couldn't even get the hardware, right? (laughs) And let's not forget the glorious Game Genie, another thing Nintendo originally would not allow. Yes. That's right. The birth of the infamous cheating in games that yeah. sometimes you had to resort to with some of those punishing difficulties that you would see. Which were basically just ROM hacks that some company out in, where were they? They were, they were here, but where, I can't remember, but they, they basically just found, it was really like now with today's, you know, promo codes and Steamworks, it, this sounds silly, but like you can give yourself a 20 extra life points? What? Yeah, you'd buy a whole peripheral for that. 
Yeah, this wasn't the infamous Konami code. No, this no. <laughs> by peripheral for this. <laughs> this was you were shoving you were shoving the game genie into your Genesis, and then the cartridge for the game actually went into the game genie. Right, it went on top yep, of it. So exactly. it was like a pass. And I, I, it really was a ROM hack, right? It was just like a pass through thing where it would modify the stuff, the information going to the system. Yeah, I'll be honest. I never actually bought one of those because I wanted to keep my gaming experience pure. You know, I'm only going to use the cheats that the developers wanted me to use. You know, <laughs> towards the end, developers did start working with Game Genie, so you got like more interesting changes. Ah, yes. But remember, there's no digital updating and there's no patching. So what happened is the developers would actually program in the Game Genie cheats onto the game itself. And just like check if the game genie was there and give you the options. It's crazy stuff. It was really, there was like a whole book you had, you could buy on game genie cheats. It oh, came, in fact, the one I had came with a little booklet of like known popular Genesis games and codes you could type in. Oh goodness. Yeah. yeah. I sunk a lot of money into those Nintendo players guys, but I never, oh, yeah. never got into the game genie world, but yeah, fascinating glimpse into the future of ROM hacking. <laughs> yeah. Something Nintendo still hates with a fiery passion. Oh, so, do they ever, yes. Yeah, don't even put a YouTube video up. No. All right, so the Sega CD, God rest its soul. At this point, we don't have an N64 yet, but we have the elephant in the room, or should I say dinosaur, the PlayStation 1. Yeah. Which, uh, yeah, that didn't go well. So, okay, and... The history of this is Nintendo was being super restrictive still on developers. Sega was somewhat better. PlayStation was like, do you have a pulse? And do you? <laughs> yeah, they don't care. The, Just get them games. <laughs> yeah. And that kind of changed the whole industry. Very famously, Square and Enix, which used to be separate companies, both left Nintendo in favor of Sony. That's how you get Final Fantasy VII. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This this sucked a lot for Sega though, as the second fiddle already. Yep, the Saturn days were definitely numbered after this for sure. Yeah. So, all right, we don't have it on here, but we could take another five minutes and be a little sad. Just give me your eulogy of the Dreamcast. Oh my goodness, the library on this was amazing. I mean, I Truly. remember the port of, was it Soul Calibur, the Namco Fighter? Yep. Was perfect. Like, it, there was no flaws in it. And then the other part that people may not remember is that this is the first system to offer online play via its modem. That oh, was yeah. a little too soon, I guess. Or maybe it was just Dune because Sega made so many mistakes before that people were now not trusting them as much. But there are some amazing classics on the Dreamcast. I believe Capcom has their Power Fighters arcade port on there, which was, you might say, the precursor to what Nintendo would do later on with Super Smash Brothers. There are some amazing RPGs on there too. It just is a very tight system. I believe it has a Windows-like system in there under the hood, which is so, another. So it has both. It has both, right? right. So yeah. this, this was one of the Sega of America v. Sega of Japan problems. Sega of America, for some insane reason that definitely didn't work out for them, decided to make a deal with Microsoft for Windows CE, which what console might have ended up running Windows CE? 
Hmm. Let's think about that. Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's help Microsoft do their R and D for them. <laughs> Good plan. Oh, um, oh my goodness. Yeah. And so there were two modes the Dreamcast could run in depending on the disc, depending on the game. It's a little I'm too deep to jump into right now. The other heartbreaking thing about the Dreamcast is it had Marvel versus Capcom 2, which was amazing. It was. Perfect it was port. A yep. Perfect arcade port. It had Shenmue, again, amazing. It really was. If you didn't have it at the time, like I got one of those. I saved up. I got one of those brandy new. And I was sure that obviously Sega is going to win the generation. Not only did they lose, barely made a year and a half. Yeah, it was. It was. It got crushed critically short-lived and this is when they got it right the hardware was right. right like they did everything they could and and certainly you know japan did all they could to market it but when you in the library like i said there are even other games i haven't mentioned like ikaruga one of the best top-down shooters from treasure the same developer of gunstar heroes like there were some real classics on here but again sony's aggressive strategy and the missteps from before, Sega was tarnished here as a hardware vendor in America after the debacle of the 32X. So it all came back to haunt them in the worst way it could. Well, and it was not well known at the time. But I didn't do any research for this episode. Did you know, Eric, that Sega was literally on the verge of bankruptcy, but they kept it secret? Oh, that's news to me, my God. Yeah, you look it up. The guy who owned the parent company or owned the parent company that owned Sega at the time CR something, basically it's something research, but obviously a Japanese company, uh, personally loaned Sega money, several billion dollars to keep them in business. Oh my goodness. That's when they made the transition to kill their hardware business and to move to a publisher. Oh, wow. And very famously, the person they went to to be their hardware partner was Nintendo, right? They went, because now the, the whole scene had changed. Sony was eating everybody's lunch. Yep. And, you know, it's the... Familiar devil, right? The familiar enemy is sometimes the better friend. Yeah. So, yeah. And it's funny, on his deathbed, this gentleman actually forgave the loan. Wow. And gave all the stock he still owned in Sega back to Sega itself so that it could resell it to raise more capital. Oh, my so goodness. Just like a true, yeah, I was, I verified it with three different sources. They're publicly available. I was shocked. I actually just heard that yesterday. <laughs> makes you put the feels out there for them even more that they they went out on that note but right um, well they had it if they could have presumably had they not i don't know done some drugs and made the 32x i mean <laughs> I, I have no idea why they did that it's, it like at least like everybody was trying to do a cd add-on right so the mega cd the sega cd depending on which region you were in because have different names it was just like a thing right playstation very famously was supposed to be a CD add-on to SNES. Yes. But they got in a little bit of a, a, a argument, let's say, mm-hmm. and Nintendo basically cut, cut Sony off. And, I mean, it's like a Kurosawa movie. They just drew katanas at dawn, and good job, Nintendo. You created your, your biggest threat. Yeah, amazing. If you play that thought experiment, what if Nintendo had, had bought into the Super Nintendo CD? You know, history could have been a whole lot different for Sega, but all these things just added up. Well, the reason they didn't, and they've interviewed people about this, is they literally made a mistake in negotiating the contract oh. and gave Sony the right to allow anybody to publish CDs through Sony as well. 
removing Nintendo's control and their thick, thick royalties from the cartridges, right? Yeah, and if we know anything about Nintendo, they like their royalties and control. (laughs) Well, they, they like their control. So what they did was, this is, again, amazing culture clash time. They went to Sony and tried to just make a gentleman's side agreement that Sony just wouldn't do that. Yeah. Sony just said, no, are you kidding me? Yeah, they're not going to fall for that nonsense. <laughs> That's never going to work. Right? <laughs> so they went behind Sony's back, went to Europe, hooked up with Philips, who did end up making a CD peripheral that flopped for Nintendo. And Sony, it's incredible, just enraged, like personally enraged. I have a PS5 in the other room here. Because some old Japanese dude got mad at another old Japanese dude. Just think about it, right? Like, beautiful. Yeah. You can't write, you can't make this stuff up, everybody. The history and how these titans and video game development had the budding head moments and rage quits, if you will, and saying, okay, you were going to do that to us. We're going to show you. And hence, the PlayStation starts this other era that like, was definitely one of the reasons Sega and, downfalled. And because Sega, when its competitors are fighting, Sega always is the one who has to hit the mat for some reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They don't have a, no resurrecting the life on that one. Yep. <laughs> no, no. Maybe, maybe just, yeah, they're okay now as a software publisher. That's a good idea. They should stay there. Yeah, I think they've learned their lesson now. Yep. Yeah. So speaking of great software, uh, Eric, where could folks find you? Yeah. So contrary to my uh, various gaming opinions, I'm probably more known for my love for a little language called R for statistical computing, which I use every day. So I am a podcaster. I have a podcast about R itself called both the R podcast and another one called our weekly highlights, which is a take on the biggest news stories in the community related to R and data science. We'll have links in the show notes here, but you can find that at rweekly.org. I also, within the R ecosystem, there's a web application framework called Shiny, which fun fact was also the name of the developer of that Aladdin game on Genesis. Coincidence, of course, they're not the same, but little did I know back then, I would like Shiny in a different way when I got older. But I run something called the Shiny Developer Series, which is a series of interviews of those in the Shiny community, how they're building great apps and taking data science to new directions. And I am on Twitter still somewhat with at the RCast. And I'm also on that fancy Mastodon with at our podcast at podcastindex.social. That's where you can find me. And also on the Discord as well. I was just going to say, so folks, if you haven't already joined the Gamer Radio Discord, we get games together. We do sometimes get a little emo about Sega. It happens. <laughs> we have our fifis. Yes. That Discord link is unpronounceable because those letters do not belong together in English, but it is in the show notes. Eric, I want to thank you for coming on today. Folks, go check out his stuff. I've known him for a while. I didn't know about the shiny developer thing, but I'll check that out after this. And yeah, good stuff. Oh, yeah. Well, as you can tell, I could talk about this stuff all day. So let's do this again sometime. It was massive fun. We should just refurb some Dreamcast and then cry and have to refurb them again from the water damage. I think that's where we're going with this. Yeah, You're on. Yep. (laughs) That was good. Have a great day. You too, Michael. Thanks. Bye.